Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. I want to do a message that's actually related to the series that I just recently finished. Um, for those of you who come regularly, you might be aware I did a series that I entitled, What's That About? And then there was dash, 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 question mark. And for a series of messages, I talked about concepts that most people imagine or feel are related to the ends of the age. So I did, what's that about Daniel's 70 weeks? I did, what's that about Israel, its people, its land, and its future? I did one called, What's That About the Book of Revelation? Another one called, What's That About the Battle of Armageddon? And uh, the last one was, What's That About the Olivet Discourse? When I did the message uh, about, What's That About the Battle of Armageddon? Um, it It was online. We were actually in lockdown when I did that message. And Karen was watching the Sunday. We sat down together to watch the Sunday morning. And at the end of it, she said to me, hey, that was really, really interesting. But what does that mean in practical terms? Being the practical one among us, she wanted to know what a message like that meant in shoes. Now, I know that I can get caught in the abstract, the theological, the philosophical, and sometimes forget that things need to be brought down out of the ether and actually mean something to people that are living in shoes. So her question really made me contemplate, and as a result, I jotted down a couple of thoughts that actually make up the basis of this message that I want to share with you. So I've called it, what's that about spiritual warfare? But you'll, you'll understand why I got there as I go back over what I said on the Battle of Armageddon. I want to briefly summarize that message. Some of you wouldn't have heard it. Some of you heard it and didn't understand it. Um, Let me briefly summarize it for you, and then I'll share with you the few thoughts I had about Karen's question. The book of Revelation, chapter 16, verses 12 through 16, speak about a battle that is called the Battle of Armageddon. It's actually the only time in Scripture that that phrase is used. And what I suggested in that message is in keeping with the genre of the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic, which is kind of like... um, more like poetry than it is history, more like Salvador Dali's art than it is photographic art. You know, it's kind of, it pushes the boundaries. So that's the genre of Revelation, and I suggested that given the genre of Revelation, we should be wary of interpreting that battle in physical, concrete, literal terms. Now, I admit that many scholars do believe that Armageddon will be a literal battle, physical battle fought at the end of the age, and generally they say a place called Megiddo, which is a couple of days' walk north of Jerusalem. And according to those scholars, it will be the last great battle of history in which the Antichrist uh, and his cohorts will be defeated by Jesus at his second coming. Now, in that message, what I suggested was that wasn't the only possible interpretation of that idea of Armageddon, and in my humble opinion, not the one most likely either. Now, one reason for questioning the literal interpretation of of that battle being physical is the very meaning of the word Armageddon. 
John points out in the text that Armageddon is actually a Hebrew term transliterated into the Greek text of the book of Revelation. So in order to understand the word, you have to understand Hebrew. And Armageddon comes from two Hebrew words. The first is ha, ah, and it's literally, uh, it means a mountain. So Ha-Mageddon is a mountain of something or a mountain somewhere. The second part of the Hebrew word is the problem because it's really difficult to decipher. It's, it reads M dash apostrophe, reversed apostrophe, dash D. And, and the great question that scholars face is, what are the consonants that go into that to make up the word? Now, Megiddo, the plain, the plain of Megiddo, can be made to fit. Hence the idea that the great battle will be fought in a geographical location north of Israel. So if you accept that interpretation, the phrase Hamageddon means mountain of Megiddo. Now, that's immediately problematic because Megiddo is actually a very vast plain. Geographically, there aren't any mountains even relatively near Megiddo. In fact, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, I think it's about verse 11, it describes the plains of Megiddo. So Mount Megiddo simply does not exist. No Mount Megiddo is referenced either in the Old Testament or in any ancient Jewish literature. So gathering armies to a place that actually geographically doesn't exist should at the very least make us somewhat wary about adopting a literal geographical interpretation of this battle being in that place in Israel. Daryl Johnson in his book, Discipleship on the Edge, says there is no place in the Middle East by the name of Armageddon, which suggests that the name, like so many other names in Revelation, is a symbol. Now if it's true, what, are, what might Armageddon be a symbol of? And it was the essence, that was the essence of what I tried to unpack in that message that I did a few weeks ago. I suggested that numerous scholars have suggested that there is another phrase that fits ha m dash apostrophe dash d better than Megiddo. And it's the phrase moed, m-o reversed apostrophe E.D., and not Megiddo. So, ha-moed. Moed means the gathering or the assembly or the congregation, the mount of gathering or congregation. And unlike mountains of Megiddo, which is entirely lacking in ancient literature in general and the scriptures in particular, the ha-moed, the mountain of gathering, actually is a phrase that's found in the scriptures. And a really good principle of Bible interpretation is let the Bible interpret the Bible. So when you find a phrase like that, you, find, you ask, is it anywhere else in the scriptures? Is there anywhere else in the scriptures that can throw light on this phrase? So when we come to ha-moed, you say, is it found in the Scriptures? And it is, and it's found in a stunning place. In Isaiah chapter 14, there is a picture painted of an ancient struggle for control of the mountain of assembly, the Hamoed. It's the place of God's governmental control of the cosmos. And in Isaiah 14, and also in a parallel passage in Ezekiel 28, they combine to give us a picture of an ancient angelic rebellion led by a creature called Lucifer who seditiously grasps for the control of this mountain of assembly, the Hamoed. 
The battle of Hamoed is a struggle, I said to you that day, uh, to capture the allegiance of the inhabitants of the cosmos, both angelic and human. And the conflict rages over the question, to whom will the gathering of the people be? There's an ancient messianic prophecy in the, book of, uh, in the book of Genesis that reads like this. It's found in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh is a reference to the coming Messiah. And the scripture says, unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, Lucifer and his cohorts sought to challenge Messiah's right to have the people gather to him. He sought control of the Hamoed, the gathering or the mountain of congregation. And I suggested to you that this is an age-long battle. Armageddon doesn't represent something at the end of the age. I think the battle of Hamoed is a present-day battle. It's raged around it's raging around us in the here and now. It's not simply some battle far off in a galaxy far away in a time long ago. For God's people in every age, Hamoed is the core wrestling against the spirit powers of darkness that resist and challenge God's people and God's purposes. This is what Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 6 when he said we wrestle not against flesh and blood, we wrestle against the principalities and powers that although are decisively defeated as a result of what Jesus did on the cross, nevertheless they still continue to seek to contest God's purposes and somehow wrest control of the Hamoed off, the, off God. We, we know that's a lost cause as far as he is concerned. So Karen's question came after that message, and her question was, so that's really interesting, Don, but what does spiritual warfare look like for ordinary people? How do we walk out the battle of Hamoed in, in our shoes? Whenever the subject of spiritual warfare comes up, there are likely to be two different reactions. There are always some people who you mention it, their eyes blaze with passion, and they are ready to answer the call to attack hell front on with 40 days of prayer and fasting. The second group, and I suspect they are the majority, who are people whose eyes, rather than blaze with passion, glaze over as they respectfully excuse themselves from even considering, let alone entering into any form of battle. And it's to the second group that I want to address myself in this message. And before you turn off and tune out thinking that you're about to be scolded for your lack of spirituality, I want to put myself firmly in that category as well. I include myself in that category and I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you. What I do know is that we tend to disqualify ourselves very quickly from spiritual warfare because we frankly know that we aren't spiritual giants. I am no Reese Howes, okay? And if you don't know who Reese Howes is, you obviously haven't read the book called Intercessor, and I would suggest that you look it up and read it. It is both an inspiring and an intimidating read. It was a man who really took on the powers of darkness and prayer and fasting and saw world-changing events. I'm no Carlos Anacondia, and if you haven't heard of him, He's an Argentinian pastor who goes around in South America challenging territorial spirits and praying until the strongholds are broken and seeing revival break out all over the place. 
I, ha- I do possess and I have read all of Peter Wagner's books on spiritual warfare, and there's a handful of them. I have read George Otis's books on spiritual mapping. Very impressive. And at the risk of you thinking a great deal less of me, I confess that my battle was largely in completing the reads rather than living out their teaching. When I read those books, sometimes I feel totally out of my depth, and people like Reese Howes and Carlos and Condia are completely out of my league. Now, the result of feeling like that, and I suspect you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, is that we are tempted to leave the battle altogether to people that we feel are better qualified, more spiritual, and who are more committed than we are. However, what if spiritual warfare is actually less complicated and less difficult than some of us have led to be, been led to believe? What if it doesn't always require spiritual mapping, intense hours and maybe days or months of prayer and 40-day fasts? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not belittling any of those things, spiritual mapping, intense times of prayer, or long fasts, uh, or the people who engage in them. Um, they, they have my deepest admiration. However, it just seems to me that they are not the norm. Sometimes I wonder if people who enter into those things are more like the strategic generals or the field marshals in spiritual warfare, while it seems to me that I'm perhaps a lowly private, a foot soldier, and truth be told, sometimes an unwilling conscript. What could spiritual warfare look, for, look like for someone like me? Perhaps someone like you too. It was as as I was contemplating that question that a potpourri of thoughts actually came to me. I jotted them down. I want to just talk about three of them with you this evening. Firstly, Hamoed is about gathering. It's It's the gathering of the congregation. It is a battle for who controls the gathering. The key question, remember, and the cosmic struggle is who unto whom shall the gathering of the people be? And as I thought about that, I wondered that perhaps something as simple as choosing to be with God's people in community on a regular basis is, in fact, an act of war. That as we come together like this on a Sunday, it is actually an act of spiritual allegiance. It's driving a stake in the ground. Now, I know that you've probably never thought of coming to church as spiritual warfare, but I'd like to encourage you in this message to think of it as more than simply, I'm going to church. It is, I'm going to be part of the Hamawed, the gathering that is unto him, and it is a spiritual statement. It's spiritual warfare 101. I know that gathering with God's people might not always seem like spiritual, you know, strategic level warfare. As I say, that you might have never entertained the thought that it actually is an act of war, but but I'm more and more convinced that it is. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus was speaking about the binding of the strong man. It's a classic spiritual warfare passage, and people quote it all the time about binding the strong man in the heavenlies and so on. In that context, he says this in verse 30, he that is not with me is against me. He that gathers not with me scatters abroad. The message translation puts it like this, this is war, and there's no neutral ground. If you're not on my side, you're the enemy. If you're not helping by gathering, you're making things worse by scattering. 
The Greek word for gathering there is the word sunago, and it simply means the, the, the coming together of the congregation, the gathering of ourselves together. When we gather like this in community to worship, to serve, to partake of the Lord's Supper, to submit our lives to being shaped by the teaching of Scripture, we are engaging in an act of war. It's a declaration of allegiance, and we are saying we are gathering together unto him. It's such a countercultural act of subversion and resistance because our culture says, listen, it's not about him. It's all about you. Life is all about you. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want. And, and to, to say, no, we can't. We're soldiers under orders is so countercultural. In it's resisting the world's narrative that says you're master of your own fate, you're captain of your own vessel, and if you don't feel like doing it, don't do it. You've got to be authentic, you know, and, and I mean, who wakes up on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening and says, authentically, I feel like going to church? Most of us don't. Maybe some of you do. But the reality is we don't simply do what we feel. We are people under orders. We embrace a different narrative that calls us to be disciples, those who are apprenticed to Jesus, soldiers under orders who are, quite frankly, not free to do whatever they want, whenever they want. To be baptized into Jesus is to enter into another story. It is not the story of Western hyper-individualism that says, do what you feel whenever you feel like it. A couple of weeks ago, Joe wrote a passage in our e-newsletter, and one of the lines that just stuck out to me was, was the line that says, the story you live in is the story you live out. What story do you live in? Do you live in the hyper-Western individualism that just says, oh, whatever I feel whenever I feel like it? Or do you recognize yourself to be a disciple, being shaped in the reflection and, and pattern of Jesus, your rabbi, part of his cosmic army. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Take your share of suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, just as I do. And as Christ's soldier, do not let yourself become tied up in worldly affairs, for then you cannot satisfy the one who has enlisted you in his army. We're soldiers, and I don't know whether you've ever thought about that. You know, new recruits who join the army are put through mind-numbing hours of marching drills, parades, obstacle courses. They assemble and disassemble their weapon until they can do it with their eyes closed in the dark. Must, must sometimes wonder why the mindless repetition. The mindless repetition isn't simply intended to break them, although it may well have that effect. What it's intended to do is to create an ethos. Now, an ethos is a pattern of responding um, to, to you respond to something without even the need for a conscious decision. It is so built into you that you do it without even having to think about it, let alone make a decision about it. And as an example, I, I hope this is your ethos, when you go and you get in the car, you start it up and, and without even thinking, you pull over and you click it. You put on your seatbelt because it's so built into you, 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 you don't have to think, hmm, what now? Oh yes, seatbelt. Shall I? Hmm, don't really feel like it today. 
You just pull it over and you click it. It's, it's, it should be your ethos. Soldiers are put through the seemingly endless drills to create an ethos of unquestioning obedience to their superiors. When the drill sergeant, my dad was a drill sergeant, so I know this, when the drill sergeant screams at you, if you value your life, you don't stand up and say, why? Or even maybe more politely, may I ask a question? You just simply do what they say. If you say anything, it's yes, sir. Long and bitter experience has taught military men that soldiers must obey without question because often their lives depend on it. In the heat of battle, under fire, the last thing that a commanding officer wants to hear from his or her charges uh, when they issue orders is, why? You just got instant obedience. It's ethos. They must be able to assemble and disassemble that weapon in the dark with eyes closed because often that's how it has to be assembled in the heat of battle. It creates ethos. There's nothing wrong with ethos. In fact, let me tell you, you will create ethos whether you want to or not. It's, it, it, you will either create it deliberately and consciously or you will create it by default. That's how life goes. Jesus created ethos, and it had to do with gathering. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 16, it says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his, and the Greek word is ethos. It's translated custom by the English, but the Greek word is ethos. As was his ethos, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Jesus created ethos. He did not get up on the Sabbath day and think, mm, shall I go to synagogue today? It's lovely and fine. The beach is not far. Maybe I should go down to Galilee and have a bit of a, have a, bit of a day off. He didn't think like that. It was just, I do it. That's what I do. That is who I am. Gathering with God's covenant people on a regular basis was his habitual pattern, his ethos. And can I suggest that if you want to be a disciple, you should think about it being yours. As his disciples, we walk in his dust. We walk in his footsteps. And Hebrews 10.25 says this, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Don't do that. Don't stop doing that. Be a regular part of gathering yourselves together. Because some people are creating an ethos by not doing that. That's what it says. As is the ethos of some. Exhort one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So I'm doing exactly what the book of Hebrews tells me to do. It says, I need to exhort you to create a deliberate ethos in terms of gathering with the people of God. It is spiritual warfare 101. And you will build an ethos one way or another. You build it deliberately by choice, or it happens just because you're inconsistent and unreliable. Now, I know when I do a message like this that there will be people who say, Don, that's just legalistic tomfoolery. We are free. And of course we are. Galatians says that. But Paul goes on to say, but don't, your, don't use your freedom as an excuse for fleshly nonsense. I'm, I'm not suggesting that if you miss church on a Sunday, you've committed a mortal sin. I, I came out of a, you know, the, the Roman Catholic uh, background and, and we, you did not miss Mass, okay? Because if you miss Mass, we were told it was a mortal sin. And if you died with a mortal sin on your soul before you got to, co to confession, you were in big trouble. 
I'm not talking about that. And I know there's some flexibility, but you know what? Some people have taken flexibility way too far. And their idea of consistent gathering is once every, I don't know, six weeks, four weeks, three weeks. I want to tell you that's not ethos. When you're gathering one in six, you are not gathering five out of six. Guess which creates ethos? So oh, Don, I, just, I, I suspect your motives. You're a pastor and you're probably just trying to get a crowd. Well, I want to just say to you, net, no, I'm not. I'm trying to create disciples. I'm trying to talk to people about following in, their foots, in the footsteps of their rabbi who built ethos into his life and said gathering is important. Be, be regular in that. Gathering with God's people is an act of spiritual warfare. It's driving a stake into the ground and saying, I am gathering together unto him. Spiritual warfare 101. Second thing I wrote down, and this won't surprise you, but, but prayer is an act of warfare. Now, the problem with saying prayer is an act of warfare is that most of us think, as I mentioned earlier, when you have prayer and spiritual warfare, that you're talking about hours, days, perhaps even months of intense prayer and fasting. I recognize some people are called to that kind of ministry and that kind of a lifestyle, and I'd like to suggest that some of us at least should know times in our lives where there is intense prayer, maybe with fasting. I'm, but I'm not talking about that kind of intense prayer. I'm talking about real simple prayer. For so many people, prayer becomes all or nothing, and because they can't do all, they do nothing. Because I don't pray perhaps for an hour a day, um, I f some people feel disqualified for, from praying at all. And I said this morning, that's a bit like since I can't fire a bazooka or be in control of a massive piece of artillery, since I've only got a single shot rifle, I, I kind of feel disqualified, so I don't fire my single shot rifle. Listen, some people do have big artillery. Other people just have a simple rifle and the, the scripture says, shoot it, pray. So, well, I don't know how to. The disciples didn't either. And so one day they said to Jesus, Jesus, we've watched you praying. It's incredibly impressive. Will you teach us to pray? John taught his disciples to pray. We've watched you pray. Will you teach us? And he said, sure. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I want to tell you, you pray through that, probably takes you 15 seconds, 20 seconds at most. Can I suggest that if you're not great at praying, start doing that. When you get up in the morning, pray the Lord's Prayer. When you go to bed at night, pray the Lord's Prayer. Just start simple prayers. Fire a shot. Rather than saying, since I can't control the whole of the artillery, I won't do anything at all. Get your rifle and start firing one or two shots. You know the amazing thing about the Lord's Prayer is as you start to pray it, it can open up large vistas to you because it's actually a pattern to pray, not just a prayer that you can pray. So you start off, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Praise your name, Father. Well, one of the things I did years and years ago, probably 20 plus years ago, I got a list of the names of God. And when I started to pray that prayer, I would just go through the list of the names. 
Father, your name is Jehovah Sikinu. You're the God who is righteous. And I want to say thank you for being righteous. You're merciful. You're gracious. You're slow to anger. You're full of loving kindness and, and covenant faithfulness. You're, you're full of truth. And, and you start saying thank you for things like that. And it's just that one little name that opens up a whole room of possibilities as you pray. And then, then the next one is Jehovah Makadesh, and that means God who sanctifies me. I want to tell you, I can spend 45 minutes on that one because there's lots of things that need to be sanctified. I used to joke when I was a Catholic that when I went to confession, the priests used to have to do shift work because there was a lot of stuff to deal with. Well, God doesn't mind. He doesn't have to do shift work, but he really does want to sanctify me so you can pray through those things that bother you that you know aren't right. Jehovah Shalom. Lord, you're the one who makes all things flourish. Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord who is my shepherd. And I thank God for the way that he's led me in the past, for, for leading in the present, for leading in the things that I know need to, are coming my way. Jehovah Rofoy, the Lord who is our physician. I start praying for people who need a touch physically. Jehovah Gibor, Jehovah Nisai, the Lord our banner. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord who is there. And I go on and on. And suddenly, 45 minutes have gone, and I haven't got far past the first line of that prayer. You say, well, Don, I couldn't do that. Well, neither did I at the start. I said, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then I went on to the next line. And the next line is, your kingdom come. That's an act of spiritual warfare. You're saying in the midst of the brokenness, the darkness, the perversion and the corruption, I want to see your rule come, your kingdom. And Romans says, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And I pray those things. It doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be hours long. Just start. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just start doing that. Fire your single shot. And do it in the morning. And do it at night. Do it at night. And if you get a break during the day, do it then too. I'll leave, I'll leave that thought with you, okay? Third thing. So gathering, praying. Thirdly, an act of generosity. I don't know that you've ever thought that being generous to somebody who probably doesn't deserve it is an act of spiritual warfare. In a world of grasping and greed, an act of generosity constitutes a radically culture-shattering, cultural, uh, countercultural act. It is an act of spiritual resistance to the narrative that the powers of darkness sell us, which tell us, you need that, don't give that away. There might be a rainy day up ahead, tuck it away for that day. Get all you can, can all you get. We live in a world that is totally centered on self, grasping, hanging on. We live in a world that's bound by a spirit of poverty. You say, well, Don, I didn't know there was a spirit of poverty. I thought poverty was just a condition. You know what? The spirit of poverty can bind really, really wealthy people. The spirit of poverty is essentially a fear of not having, therefore we, be, therefore we resolve to, to don't give. You can have a lot of money and still have a fear of losing it. There are a lot of rich people who are bound by a spirit of poverty. Fearing that they might lose, they are resolved to not giving. 
You know, for too many believers, they are not only not waging war with generosity, they are actually, in fact, at this dimension of their lives, prisoners of war. And I want to encourage you, don't be bound by that same spirit that grips our age. Generosity wages war against the spiritual strongholds of our world, and there are so many opportunities to be generous. There's a, the supermarket that I go to, very often there's a guy who stands on the little traffic island just before you go out onto the road, and he plays his guitar. And he plays it in the sunshine, and I've gone by, and he's played it in the pouring rain. And it's so easy just to drive by. Don't have to, don't have to wind down the window, don't have to confront him, don't have to say anything, it's easy to look the other way. And ages ago I just resolved, I'm not gonna do that. So I try and be creative. Sometimes I just give him money. After the lockdown, I, I drove and, uh, and I put down the window and said, hey, so good to see you back. And I gave him a lot more than he would probably normally get. Other days it was really hot, so I bought a really cold can of V. And as I drove by, I hung it out the window for him. And, oh, bro, he said. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. Now he always sees me in waves. Holds out his hand, and sometimes I close the window and look there. Because <laughs> sometimes I forget, and sometimes that's not appropriate just to do it all the time. But friends, just sometimes just simple, simple acts can, can speak into this world that is all about me. And, and we're saying, no, it's not all about me. And, and I have resources that I want to be able to share with other people. This, by the way, talking about generosity, isn't intended to be a complaint about those of you who come to Gateway on a regular basis because it isn't needed. And I just want to say Gateway is a super generous congregation of God's people, and I am thrilled and feel, I hope in the right sense, so proud to be part of it. You know what, over the last 18 months or so, you, you give regularly, and, and it goes to missions, and we are generous with our missionaries. It goes, uh, some money goes into the Barnabas Fund, which is helping people around um, our city and community that have needs. In addition to that, over the last 18 months, you've given $111,000 to the Hamilton Night Shelter. You paid off their mortgage. They came to us and said, hey, we, we, we would love to have extra workers, but we just can't afford them because we've got this mortgage. You paid off the mortgage. You gave $100,000 to a church in Slovenia who are struggling to get a foothold in a Catholic stronghold. So badly they need a church. And you guys gave $100,000 to them. You gave $50,000 to Holly Bolly, which is... Part of our congregation, the Wilkerson G's, who live in, in India, and, and uh, Anna employs Indian girls to make clothing and are doing an incredible work, and you gave 50 grand to them. Last week, we showed you a video clip of $65,000 that was given to Fiji for water projects. 
haven't told you this, but we just gave another $65,000 to an organization here in the Waikato, a Christian organization called Mana Hapuri, which is an organization working with at youth risk in the Waikato area. They were looking for a salary for a worker, and they were hoping that people would be able to contribute, and they might be able to cobble together enough to pay a worker. We said, we'll pay that worker for a year. You did that. You gave the woman's refuge a gift over the lockdown period. We were concerned that some people would really be put in danger over that period. And so you gave some money to the refuge. And we got this lovely note back. Please send our huge thanks to the Gateway Whanau for the funding uh, to purchase mobile phones. We have a number of very happy advocates who are able to do their job more effectively. That pile of uh, iPhones is what you paid for. You gave over a hundred shoeboxes, jam-packed with goods for kids who don't know anything about receiving gifts for Christmas. We got food bags coming up, as Annabelle said, and generally they come piling in as people give. I'm so thrilled to be part of a congregation that, that is exceedingly generous. You know, people... When you talk about church to people out there, they say, oh yeah, you know, we know about the church. They're always after your money. And I joked this morning and said, I'm not after your money. I'm after much more than that. And we're after you. We're after your hearts. We want disciples who are following in the footsteps of the most generous person that ever walked the face of the earth. And wherever he went, generosity just flowed. It was who he was, and in that generosity, he broke the powers of darkness, which said, no, no, no. We want to be a people that say, yes, yes, yes. You are firing some significant shots on that, on that score, and I want to just ask you, keep pulling. Keep pulling the generosity trigger. Pull it as a family, pull it as individuals, and together, by God's grace as a community, we'll keep doing it corporately. So in conclusion, and I'm going to invite the musicians up, Hamawed warfare doesn't have to be esoteric, complicated, or difficult. It's entered into by simple acts like giving, like praying. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. It's not that complicated. It's by being generous. It's being by faithful. It's be, being faithful to your commitments, the commitments that you've made. It's loving mercy, showing kindness. It's walking humbly with God. These simple acts serve ultimately to undermine and overthrow the narrative that the powers of darkness are trying to shape us with and by virtue of shaping us with, imprison us. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.